Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. A lot of early Cold War decisions, it seems to me, were based on a mistaken short-term analysis or misperceptions about what the Soviets were up to. And a lot of these decisions came with commitments, security commitments that the United States had to build up that became rigidified over time and created a kind of path dependence that turned out to be extremely difficult to escape. We're still engaged with the legacy of all those commitments and entanglements that we made in the Cold War today. And I think a case can be made that we're at a similar inflection point in the U.S.-China rivalry. Uh, Some hawkish decisions that seem to make sense now, once established, might morph into some monstrosity of policy inertia for the future that gradually shrinks the space for these two powers to cooperate or de-escalate. Here to talk with me a little bit about this today is Campbell Craig. He's professor of international politics at Cardiff University, Um, and he co-wrote a book with uh, Frederick Logval on uh, America's Cold War and the Politics of Insecurity. Um, Welcome to the show, Campbell. Thanks, John, and thanks for having me, and greetings from Great Britain. So Pompeo, Secretary of State Pompeo, with just a few days left in the Trump administration, um, announced recently that he was lifting all of the uh, restrictions uh, that governed uh, U.S. and Taiwan relations. Um, This is seen to be an enormous provocation um, from China. And this kind of makes me think of those early Cold War decisions that lock us into an adversarial position with another power. And we can't quite see too far ahead in order to sort of have an off-ramp. Um, What do you think about this decision? Uh, How do you think that will be received in China? And uh, how do you think we should move forward? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because as soon as I saw that news, irrespective of this interview, I was thinking about exactly the same kind of things that you saw back in the early Cold War. And, you know, I I can't read the mind of Secretary Pompeo, but it seems to me like what he's doing is exactly what we... um, Fred Logoval and I in our book do, which is to uh, question whether the motivations of policymakers have to do with actual strategic ends or whether it's about domestic politics, whether it's about demonstrating, as I think is the case with Pompeo today, to the electorate and to potential funding supporters as well, uh, that he can be counted upon to be uh, a hawk belligerent with respect to China were he to run for re-election in four years, as I think many of us believe he's likely to do. Um, and so it's classic. Um, our subtitle of our book, uh, America's Cold War, is The Politics of in- Insecurity. And it's, it's classic politics, I think. It's, it's, it's creating a threat to the United States, which doesn't clearly exist. But the more that you actually engage in discourse and policy with respect to that, the more you're more likely to make it exist. You know, Secretary of State Pompeo's decision to do this really did make me think of your book because, um, again, like you said, we don't know Pompeo's internal thoughts, but it seems to me that one way to interpret this is very much through the lens of domestic politics. Um, He might want to force the Biden administration to make a decision to possibly undo uh, this policy on Taiwan. And then Pompeo is not only holding himself out as a hawk, but making distance between himself and the doves who he can call appeasers. 
if they do, in fact, uh, reverse this. Including, in some ways, his current boss. How so? Well, I mean, I think that, that one of the things about Trump, and I, as well as everyone on the planet, is glad that he's leaving in a week, but um, uh, was that he, he didn't seem to buy in as much as other people in Washington to this notion of, of inevitable great power conflict, and especially with respect to China. It's hard to really know what his policy was because it gets blurred by so much crap. But but um, but I, I think Pompeo is staking himself to to the right of, of Trump on this one. Yeah, I suppose that makes sense. Um, they're not uh, going to do impeachment and removal and therefore ban him from holding future office. So the, the prospect of a Trump 2024 run is uh, very real to fellow Republicans. In terms of uh, the long term, I, I think of Taiwan in, in the Cold War context, you know, when we initially started to make that commitment, the Chinese Civil War was coming to an end, the Korean War was picking up. There were all these uh, factors that um, went into the U.S. decision making about why this was necessary. Um, and those end up changing, right, when conditions change. Um, the commitment to Taiwan meant something a little different in 1979 than it did in 1950. And it means something different today. And so I wonder how we can sort of take lessons from this. Um, how do we uh, approach China in a way that doesn't lock us in to an inflexible position sometime down in the future? Well, I, th I think the, the way to approach that from sort of a macro sense is to distinguish between China now and the Soviet Union after World War II. And, you know, Fred Logovil and I are very critical of a lot of American foreign policy during the Cold War. But what we aren't critical of is the initial decision to contain the USSR, which we both argue was a legitimate and reasonable thing to do, not because the Soviet Union was about to attack the US, but because, as people like George Kennan argued, it could, could potentially threaten the United States and the Western world if it weren't contained at all. And so that was one decision that led, as we all know, to the Cold War. The difference between the Soviet Union of, of the post-war era and China today is really quite fundamental. On one hand, you have a China which is um, uh, part and parcel of the uh, global economic order. It's not, it hasn't barricaded itself from the capitalist world in the way that the Soviet Union and its client states did after the Second World War. But the other thing, and the one that isn't discussed as much, is that China has clearly looked at what the Soviet Union did during the Cold War and its failed effort to contend with the West and said, we're not going to make that mistake. We're not going to repeat the errors of the Soviet Union. And what that means in specifics is that we're not going to try to match the United States in terms of its military power. It's not happening, and it hasn't been happening for the last 30 years. And this is a deliberate decision, I think, by China not to make the mistake of the USSR, which is to try to match the US weapon for weapon. It's a losing game. And China feels, because it's got a nuclear deterrent and a strong economy, that it need not do so. So the, the more that the United States plays the Cold War game of, of treating China as this great power adversary, the more it's going to persuade, I think, Chinese decision makers that maybe this was a bad idea. Maybe they do have to play the Soviet game. And that will lead to a second Cold War in the 21st century that none of us want to see. It's interesting to note that it doesn't look like 
the United States, even though we were a party to that dispute, has learned the lessons that China seems to have learned. A lot of the discussion about the defense budget does track what China seems to be investing in and kind of urge that we need to match that or invest in the same kinds of things to overcome it and not have Chinese dominance in this, that, or the other area. Um, that seems to me to be a sort of recipe for lots of overspending on defense and possibly an arms race with the same kind of results that we saw in the Cold War. So how do you look at the way the United States is planning on investing in combating and competing with China? Well, I, I think it's a work in progress, and it clearly will depend on the decisions that, that the new president makes. But what I see in Washington is a uh, political force that often is called the blob or you know, the Washington establishment, which is primed towards incessant conflict with purported or putative enemies of the United States that is going to push Biden in a direction that does lead us down the path of this second Cold War with China. That, if, as far as I know, I'm not an expert in China at all, but as far as I can tell, it's not something that China is itself seeking. Again, the Soviet Union under Stalin, um, to go back to the Cold War, um, saw it conflict with the West and the capitalist world as inevitable, right? Even if the United States had done nothing, even if the United States had, had withdrawn completely, Stalin would have still believed there was inevitable conflict and that there would be this kind of great power struggle just as it existed before the Second World War among the European states. I don't think China looks at it that way. I think China looks at it very differently. And I think that there is tremendous room for actions to be taken by the United States to try to forestall a second Cold War that are currently not really being discussed much at all in Washington because of this political pressure on politicians in both parties to be belligerent, to, to look tough to the electorate and to funders and donors. I wonder if you think the dynamic has changed a little bit in the modern day. Uh, what I mean by this is, it seems to me the the points of real friction in the U.S.-China relationship, those areas where the United States says China actually presents a real threat to us, are not necessarily in the old-fashioned traditional geopolitical realm. They're more in the realm of complex trade relationships and um, uh, technological innovation in the realm of both, you know, domestic civilian uses, but also military. Um, does that change how these two powers will end up approaching each other, where there's less emphasis on, say, territory, or, you know, fighting over a, a, a theater in, in Europe and so on? Um, does it pressure things a little differently? Oh, ab absolutely. And I, I'm not suggesting that that uh, there is no reason for any kind of friction between the United States and China. And, you know, I'm I'm totally on board with the notion of China be, being very predatory on a lot of these issues and, and operating from a very different kind of, of political approach than the United States and the West does on these matters. But if you, it, but that, as you say, does not necessarily necessitate at all traditional kind of geopolitical territorial conflict. And if you add to that as well, the nuclear dimension and the fact that the that China today, unlike the Soviet Union in the 1940s, has a nuclear deterrent, which means that it, as long as people don't go insane in Washington, it's not going to be invaded. It's not going to be attacked in the way that the Soviet Union could have been attacked after World War II. 
as some people thought what might be a good idea at the time. Uh, that also lessens this geopolitical, you know, chessboard kind of approach to international politics. It, it suggests that the United States should look at China as a competitor, much more like perhaps the European states looked at one another in terms of their economic rivalries in the 19th century, um, and not so much in this Manichaean, you know, one winner takes all kind of territorial approach that you saw during the Cold War. Right. So we could compete over who educates their population better and who engages economically with the world on fairer terms and who can attract investment and so on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, fight on trade policy, fight on 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 soft power, worry about the, the state run censorship going on in China, worry, worry, deal with that. You don't need to build thousands of new nuclear weapons to do so. You don't need eight hundred billion dollar defense budget to, to do that kind of thing. What is a sensible uh, nuclear posture for the Biden administration to adopt towards China? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, if I were in charge of that and didn't care about my political future, and neither of those things are, are, are possible, um, I would advocate a substantial cut in American military forces to match what appears to be the Chinese decision to, to adopt more or less a minimal nuclear deterrent. And there's a lot of writing on this now that I find persuasive, uh, that the Chinese have, have rejected the idea that you can win a nuclear war and that they have shaped their nuclear forces accordingly. And the only reason why they wouldn't do that, why would, they wouldn't continue with that policy, as far as I can tell, is if the United States seeks some kind of first strike capability, seeks some kind of nuclear war winning strategy. And, you know, I think it's just a, a disaster that there are people now advocating this and that the Biden administration is surely going to be influenced by this way of thinking and may look for new forms of defense systems or, or counterforce technologies, which are already in the works, uh, to try to have a first strike capability against a country like China. And China, in response to that, would do what any country would do, which is to try to contend with it. This is avoidable. It doesn't have to happen. And I think we are now really at a cr crucial turning point in re with respect to American policy on this topic. You know, as you mentioned earlier in your book, one of your main arguments is that domestic politics and domestic political pressures incentivized leaders in that era to adopt more hawkish policies uh, towards the Soviet Union. Um, if that's true, what is the way that we can kind of get out of that um, that uh, mire uh, that will sink our politicians. Um, what's a way that we can resolve the domestic issues um, and therefore not create a false image of an impending uh, dangerous adversary uh, that's about to threaten us directly? I mean, I think that is simply a question of de debate and argument within American politics. I mean, I think that it, I, I do refuse to believe that this problem is is predetermined and inevitable. I mean, this is an argument that Eisenhower made in his military industrial complex speech, talking about an informed citizenry. It's the argument that Steve Walt made in his recent book, The Hell of Good Intentions, where he actually lays out a series of ideas on how the American public can contend with militarism in American politics. You know, you saw it with the Bernie Sanders campaign. You saw it, again, I'll say it, a little bit with the Trump campaign back in 2016, you know, criticizing endless wars. 
I don't think that that the that this militarization, the politics of insecurity, that as Logaval and I put it, is something that cannot be stopped. I think it can be stopped, and it can be stopped with um, discourse such as your institution is advocating, and the Quincy Institute, and other new another new initiatives going on in the U.S. that I find very promising indeed. As I mentioned earlier, we have a set of alliances, security partners in Asia that are really holdovers from the Cold War. And we've spent, you know, about 30 years in the post-Cold War era trying to find some justification for these uh, alliances to be kept in place. Um, and the rise of China is presenting a lot of uh, policymakers with that excuse. Uh, we need to remain in this region and maintain these alliance commitments uh, in order to check a rising China. Um, I wonder if you think uh, that's a that's a good idea, that we should uh, boost our military assets in the region and continue to commit to the defense of uh, states neighboring China, um, or is this a concession that maybe we should make to China with respect to their own backyard? We don't want to signal uh, too much commitment to uh, contain a rising China. Yeah, I'm kind of agnostic on the Taiwan issue. Um, I don't feel strongly about it either way. Um, I would certainly advocate maintaining um, strong American defense commitments with respect to traditional allies like Japan. But I guess my argument would be that, as we were talking about earlier, that the United States wants to focus much more in its competition with China upon these soft power um, questions about trade, um, taking operating according to the assumption that China is not like the Soviet Union was during the Cold War, for the reasons we've discussed. But I also would uh, make overtures to China, if I were president, um, with respect to common problems. I mean, there's two common problems that face the United States and China. Um, and this is exactly what Kenneth Waltz argued in his Theory of International Politics book, written in 1979, with respect to the U.S. and the Soviet Union, a book I'm sure that you've read. And, and his last chapter was a real bombshell on this. He said, OK, you've got stability in the system. Why not look for ways for the great powers to cooperate on issues that are common to both of them? And I would identify two of those. One is, you know, reduction of the chances of nuclear war. And there's a lot that China and the United States can do in the realm of arms control and other and nonproliferation to reduce the chance of nuclear war. The last thing that the U.S. should be doing is, is trying to saber rattle with nuclear weapons and, and engaging in instead in, in substantial arms control with, respect with, with China, because neither the United States nor China wants a nuclear war. And this is one of Waltz's recommendations with respect to the U.S. and the Soviet Union back in 1979. And the second sort of common threat is climate change and the importance uh, to both the United States and China of preventing a, a economic or environmental catastrophe should climate change get out of hand. Again, the United States and China could cooperate and develop an international institution that would be a million times more effective than the ineffective conferences and treaties that have been signed over the last couple of decades that haven't amounted to anything. So this, is, this would be a, a, a progressive way of, of engaging with the Chinese on issues that both of them find important and that neither state could solve by itself. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously relevant these days with regard to the pandemic, right? Uh, the, response, the response to the pandemic 
has been uh, sort of zero sum with China. We started to cut off ties, uh, condemn them, uh, you know, uh, withdraw from the uh, international organizations that could possibly coordinate cooperation on this. And, um, you know, that seems to be the, exactly the opposite lesson. That there are non-zero sum issues on which these two powers can cooperate, not only can, but sort of need to. Um, and that kind of cooperation can possibly pave the way for the uh, satiation of uh, other issues that are really uh, confronting the two states and possibly uh, could uh, be the source of, of conflict um, and uh, you know improve the overall relationship uh, in, in general for the two sides, but also um, in terms of global governance. It just seems to make a lot more sense. But we're back to this problem again of the domestic politics being such that both sides are kind of incentivized to go for more hawkish, uh, approaches and inflate the threat that we actually see from China. Yep. And and as I say, if it's domestic politics, right, we're not talking about international structure. We're not making a sort of structural realist argument that this kind of conflict is inevitable. If you're looking at domestic politics, then you have to be hopeful that that domestic political discourse can change. And, you know, what you're doing and what Quincy's doing and what other people are doing, that's the whole point of it, is to try to get people to start thinking differently and move the goalposts with respect to what's possible in American politics. You know, can't speak to China. You know, I'm, we, we can't force other countries to adopt new political discourses, but the uh, United States can certainly change the way that it, it, it says things about what it sees in the future and follow that up with policy changes that run zero risk of putting the United States or its allies in any kind of danger. Um, but could signal to China that the United States understands the importance of these transnational problems and also understands that we're not in 1946. We're not in a situation where you have two adversaries that advance fundamentally different ideologies and who are dividing up the world between them territorially. That's just not happening now. And Ch the Chinese do un understand that, I believe. Camel Craig, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's been my pleasure, John, and um, thanks for having me again.